Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on two topics, a history of stand-up comedy and expropriating Russian assets. Our first speaker will be Wayne Fetterman, who will speak about his new book entitled The History of Stand-Up. Wayne is uniquely qualified to tell the tale, as he's been doing stand-up for the past 40 years. I hope to learn about how stand-up got its start in America, the importance of premier booking venues, and how comedians break into the business now. I want to find out why so much comedy ages poorly and why some acts are timeless. Wayne teaches the history of stand-up at USC, and I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the techniques that Wayne teaches his kids to break down the essence of a great comedic act. Our second speaker will be Lee Bukheit, who is the leading specialist on sovereign debt restructuring. Biden and the EU have frozen the Russian central bank's investment in U.S. treasuries and European government bonds. There have been rumors that Biden will confiscate these assets and give them to Ukraine to rebuild. Expropriating rogue states' assets has consequences, as treasuries will no longer be seen as riskless assets for foreign central banks, and that will undermine our desire to keep the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. I hope to learn from Lee about how the expropriation will affect Russian nationals and their holdings of American real estate and other financial assets, and how the intricacies of sovereign debt mechanics will limit Biden's actions against Russia. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. All right, let's begin our first speaker, Wayne Fetterman. I teach a class about the history of stand-up comedy. What is a stand-up comedy? What are we even talking about? Well, stand-up comedy is one person standing on stage in front of an audience with the expectation of evoking laughter from that crowd. That is the mission statement of the job. You have to stand there all by your lonesome. Trying to make them laugh is terrifying when it doesn't go well. We actually refer to it as bombing. And it's thrilling when you connect with the crowd and you go on this comedic journey together and together is the key word. It's an interactive art form. So it's a very <laughs> intense experience. I know because I've been doing comedy for over 35 years. Now, since stand-up has become commercialized, which is, oh, I can make a living doing this, there's always been a premier booking back in the vaudeville days. The premier booking was a place in New York City called the Palace Theater. If you did well at the Palace Theater, you could tour the country. It was a stamp of approval. After the Palace, there was the nightclub generation, the number one place to play during this era that really would solidify you as a comedian that could go to Vegas and open for Mitzi Gaynor if you did well at the Copacabana in New York City. The Copa was the new palace. And then... Television hits, The Ed Sullivan Show. Then Johnny Carson became the king of late night. So suddenly David Letterman from Indiana goes to L.A. to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, Jay Leno all converge on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Other new venues pop up 
that become great premiere bookings, getting an HBO special. Suddenly you could do a whole hour special on cable television. Then hosting SNL was a big thing. For a while, there's cable television, there's evening at the improv, and then the internet. Starting in 2006 with Bo Burnham doing that little song from his bedroom in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Suddenly he's more popular than hundreds if not thousands of comedians who have toured these clubs for decades. Now we have podcasting. The sitting president of the United States, Barack Obama, is doing a podcast with Mark Maron on WTF. Little podcast shows, not out of Studio One at NBC, out of his garage. And then the ability to stream specials whenever you wanted them on demand. The company that embraced stand-up, and we're living in this era right now, is the Netflix special. We get Bill Burr, we get Ali Wong, we get John Mulane, we get a host of other comedians with these specials. I'm going to leave you with this before we get to the Q&A part of this with Young Larry. Stand-up comedy is a generational art form. It's very ethereal, it's for this time, and then the power of it dissipates as time goes on. And that's because social norms change, acceptable language changes, topics change, the way we speak changes. And so cutting-edge comedians, the funniest people ever in a few generations can seem out of touch, hacky, or even unfunny to current generations. It's just the nature of the art form. So there you go. The definition of stand-up, how stand-ups become popular in those destinations, and then finally, why stand-up comedy doesn't tend to age that well. It's sort of like milk. It goes bad. Most old TV comedies taste like spoiled milk. An exception seems to be physical comedy. Take that I Love Lucy skit when Lucy takes a job at the chocolate factory. Few words are spoken, the machine starts to move faster, and we see that panic in her eyes when she starts to eat the chocolates. That is chocolate, not milk. Why is this scene timeless? Great question. Physical bits do tend to have a little longer life. However, I feel like pie in the face, pie fights, I don't know if those are still funny. Stand up unlike a physical comedy bit, like what Chaplin does where he's, dancing with the potatoes on the end of the fort. That sort of is still wonderful to watch, in my opinion. And I want to be very careful here because for someone to say that's not funny, maybe you should start thinking about saying, that's not funny to me anymore, as opposed to that's not funny, as if you know what funny is and what funny isn't. Is Chris Farley falling on the table, Timeless? Physical comedy tends to have a basic human reaction. It's like what Mel Brooks used to say, if I cut my finger on a piece of paper, it's tragedy, but if somebody else falls into a manhole and dies, that's comedy. Does successful stand-up require a long, humorous story with a narrative arc? It can be, but usually it isn't. Usually it's little comedy bits that are strung together as opposed to a long arc of a story. There are comedians that do long form. Mike Birbiglia does a long form story and then all the way through are great jokes. There's others that do the complete opposite. One-liner, comedians, Rodney Dangerfield, Stephen Wright, 
the jokes aren't connected in any way. Henny Youngman was known as the king of one-liners. He started in the 30s. So that's been going on for a while. In your book, you mentioned that in the 90s, stand-up comedy clubs expanded dramatically and then fell on hard times. What happened? We were oversaturated with clubs and comedians and club owners both got super greedy. It was like the price of a movie or something. Now it was three times that price with drinks. Plus people could see stand-up at home on evening at the improv. And so that caused a retrenchment. It's not like there was never comedy clubs in the early 90s. It's just there wasn't as many as there were in 1989. How does a young comic get discovered now? The internet. There's a new phenomenon called front-facing comedians. There were comedians that used their cell phone and flipped the camera around and just literally just taped themselves doing a bit or doing a character or in the case of one woman, lip-synced Donald Trump press conference about COVID and she ended up getting a CBS show and a Showtime special. The old school way of doing open mics, getting into a comedy club, and then touring these clubs still exists as well. But there's myriad ways of getting in right now. Comedians do it every day. I love it. In your opening remarks, you mentioned the power of premier booking locations to act as gatekeepers. Who are the new gatekeepers? If you want to do SNL, you got to go through Lauren. If you want to be on... The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. There's a booker for that show that you're going to have to please. There's still a lot of gatekeepers that you have to impress. If you have enough fans and followers, these people will want those fans to come to the clubs. And there's many comedians that tour on the strength of their podcast. There's been SNL cast members that have gotten on the show because they put up a YouTube video of their impressions. That was seen by SNL, and they got on the show. Many of the great comedians pivoted from stand-up to TV sitcoms. Is that still the natural career progression? If we go back to Jack Benny and Fred Allen doing their stand-up acts in vaudeville, they jumped on the chance to do a radio show. Same with Bob Hope. When you're a stand-up comedian, you've already proven that you know how to unlock laughter from audiences, and then they can put them into a sitcom. Bob Newhart, who had incredible comedy records starting in 1960, got the Bob Newhart show up. He was a perfect fit for it. Whereas someone like Don Rickles had a string of failed sitcoms his whole career. In your book, you mentioned that Don Rickles had three shows a night in Vegas. What at midnight? 2.30 a.m., and then 5 a.m., which you called The Breakfast Show. Vegas was a very interesting experiment in how to keep people in a casino. That was the whole mission statement of Las Vegas. Every minute a customer was in the casino meant money for that building. They would put these acts in the lounge to keep audiences there as long as possible. Carson was headlining in the main room. He would come over, or Sinatra, come over to see Rickles in the lounge. So now, a yokel coming from the Midwest of the country to see comedy could see this big headliner. And then later on, it's like, oh, my God, there's Sinatra sitting next to me being made fun of by Don Rickles. This is incredible. 
So you never knew what was going to happen in these lounge performances. They were very spontaneous. They were very improvisational. And Rickles had to work some crazy hours. My dad once went to see a Don Rickles performance, and he told me that he was still laughing from two jokes ago. Rickles would be firing off so many jokes that the audience simply couldn't keep up with him. I mean, he was just a machine. He had a bunch of lines ready to go. On top of that, he was a extremely gifted improvisational comedian. No matter what the situation, he would have a sarcastic comment. It was just a rapid fire Gatling gun of comedy that came at you and people loved him. How much does a stand-up comic rely on his writers? That still happens. I think for the most part, when we got to Pryor and Carlin especially, Carlin was like, everything I'm saying on stage is something I wrote. So the writer became the performer, where they were called gag writers, literally, back then, when radio became popular. The vaudeville gag writer was suddenly in huge demand because there was so much material you had to create every week for your radio show, as opposed to vaudeville, where you could tour for years, maybe decades on the same act, the same bulletproof 12 minutes. Most comedians now write their own material, but other comedians help them out or workshop jokes or bounce jokes off of each other. I did a show in Aspen with Jerry Seinfeld. I was his opening act. And then afterwards, I gave him a few, what they're called tags, which are extra jokes on part of a premise. And he ended up using one of them. That happens all the time in stand-up. A comedian will come up to you and go, oh, you're missing this little nugget here that you didn't think of. It just hit me. Let me give you that. Making fun of politicians is core to the stand-up act. Why is Trump a bigger target than Biden? Trump was singularly interesting because there was a lot you could really mock, the cadence of his voice, but they parody Joe Biden on SNL. There'll always be political comedy. The guy who really started it on stage in a big way was Will Rogers. Any comedian that you see that does political comedy, whether it's Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, or any of the SNL update guys, they all work in the shadow of this guy, Will Rogers. Why should people care about the history of stand-up? Why is that <laughs> important? Why did you write this book? Why, what motivated That's this? a great, I, great, you know, the way you say it. It's <laughs> like I'm being interviewed by Mike Wallace. What? Why would you write something like this? Why would this? you do such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> did your mother know it. you did this? I love it. No one has really written the history of stand-up before. I thought I was uniquely qualified to not only write this book, but do it in a very breezy, easy-to-digest style. No one has really boiled it down to like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened, this, and that's how we got to today. That's how Will Rogers is connected to Samantha B. This is how Bob Hope is connected to John Mulaney. This is how the whole thing is all one big narrative, even though the venues change, standing alone on stage getting laughs remains the core job description. What is the future for stand-up? There's people that don't do it on stage. They do it on the internet at their home. There will be a new technology that will 
change the nature of stand-up the way it did with records, the microphone, television, the internet. There will be a new technology that I will not invent that I will probably miss buying stock in the company and that will change the nature of stand-up or alter the nature of stand-up. What do you make of Jerry Seinfeld's decision to stop performing on college campuses out of fear? I teach on a college campus. I profess on these campuses. The student body is very sensitive about anything that might be offensive. Even the most benign jokes, there is definitely a virtue signaling from the audience of like, hey, I want you to know I don't appreciate you making that kind of generality about women or children. I did hundreds of colleges when I was starting out. And right at the end, I started getting topics you're not allowed to talk about. We have a lot of free speech in stand-up. Unfortunately, there's a little area around the edges where the walls are coming back in, kind of like in Star Wars when they're in that garbage dump and the walls keep coming in. When I was a kid, the walls kept expanding. When Carlin came along, suddenly we could speak about anything. That was the freedom, even if sometimes you might get offended. I produced an HBO documentary about him that'll be out in May. He used to say, the obligation of the stand-up is to find the line and then deliberately go over it. I do want a world where comedians find the line and go over it. That's where we get Sam Kennison's and Lenny Bruce's. For the first time in my life, I hear my friends consistently say that they cannot express their opinion in public on a whole host of topics. Most comedians understand that societal norms change over time. There used to be a bunch of jokes about hitting your wife, the honeymooners. One of the big running gags on that show was, one of these days, Alice, I'm going to hit you so hard you're going to go to the moon. There would never be a sitcom today with that. Very mainstream shows like Seinfeld or Friends. Go to the internet and type in Seinfeld, problematic, those two words. And there's article after article after article after article about why these shows are offensive, why they're homophobic, why they're fat shaming. I'm not even talking about an edgy comedian in a nightclub. I'm talking about mainstream prime time television from the 90s is now considered problematic by people who are easily offended by something that doesn't fit into their specific <laughs> worldview. Why are there so many Jewish stand-up comedians and gag writers? In the late 1800s, from Eastern Europe, Jews started coming to the United States, and show business was very much open. The primary focus of these comedians was to assimilate. Some of them got nose jobs. Milton Berle, I'm looking at you. But most of them changed their names. Milton Berle was Mendel Berlinger. Jerome Levitch became Jerry Lewis. Leonard Schneider became Lenny Bruce. They all dejewed their names to get into mainstream, what they call Goyim society, and succeed. There's a Talmudic tradition of questioning and looking at things from a different way, and a lot of stand-up comedy is that. I'll give you a perfect example. The sign, no swimming allowed, you can look at it and go, no swimming allowed. Or you can look at that sign and go, no, swimming allowed. And Jews have been doing that 
debating this Torah for thousands of years. It's ridiculous. And they're still doing it. Yeah, with little progress. Yeah, little progress. <laughs> Just a lot of going over the minutiae. If you think about Jerry Seinfeld's bit about cotton balls, I mean, he is really breaking down the minutiae. Who makes them? Why do they exist? And looking at the world with a slightly different comedic lens. That's really all stand-up is. Like, we all look at the same thing and then go, oh, this is what that is. How did Chris Rock become a superstar? He did something that was phenomenal, which was his big HBO special in 1996, I believe, was the year of it. He wrote some material that was so incendiary, so edgy, I would say almost overnight became a legend. That act lands him on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. He gets his own HBO series. Suddenly that relaunches his film career and he is on his way. I've known him since he was stacking chairs at the comic strip, hoping to get on late at night. Off stage, he is like a quiet, almost nerdy little skinny kid. But on stage, he's like a panther pacing back and forth doing this incredibly forceful stand-up comedy. Do you break down your jokes to understand why they succeed? Do you work on how to improve them to get more laughs? Humor is an art, but it doesn't mean that there isn't some science. Basis of comedy is surprise. Oh, I didn't think of that. No, swimming allowed is like, oh, I'm surprised. I didn't think of that. It was right there in front of me. But when it comes to the writing... I subscribe, and I will give you this for free and all your listeners, to what I call the CBS. Clarity, brevity, and specificity. There's no extra words. It's very specific to what they're talking about, and it's 100% clear what the joke is. It can't be ambiguous. Clarity, brevity, and specific. <laughs> Again, when you dissect comedy, it dies on the operating table. So let's do it. Let's kill some comedy right now. Why does comedy die on the operating table? Why can't we treat it like an artistic work? You know, when we look at Monet's water lilies, we know it's a painting. And the more we learn about how Monet created the work, the more we can enjoy it and appreciate the artisan's craft. You absolutely can in my class. One of the exercises I do is I have them take a routine that they love and transcribe it word for word. Bill Mard, when he first heard Robert Klein's album, Child of the 50s, he wrote down every word so he could see how many jokes, where the laughs were, where the setup, how long the setups were. I did that for the class as well, and they found it very informative. It wasn't particularly funny, but it was, like you said, almost like a science. I definitely turn... A stand-up comedy from a performance art into prose. Wayne, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? Everything. Stand-up comedy notwithstanding, the human condition continues to improve remarkably throughout the world, and I can't wait to see artificial intelligence. Hopefully, it won't be a Terminator situation where the machines take over. I can't wait to see what we do next. People in 50 years who are listening to this podcast will have a much healthier life than we do right now. Thanks, Wayne. I'd like to move on to our second speaker, Lee Bukite. Lee is a leader in sovereign debt restructuring, and I've asked Lee to speak about 
the expropriation of Russian assets. Thanks, Larry. You're asking what is the ultimate fate of the Russian Federation assets that the United States and the European Union have frozen, and in particular, whether President Biden could, if he wished, confiscate those assets and make them available to the Ukraine government to help them with their reconstruction or humanitarian costs. Estimates are $300 billion of Russian Federation assets have been frozen. I expect most of it is in Europe. There's no question about the president's legal authority to freeze those assets. It's been done many times before. Iran, North Korea, most recently Venezuela. There is some question about his ability to confiscate the assets. I believe he has that legal authority. President Biden thinks he has that legal authority. He has indicated that he intends to take $7 billion of Afghan central bank assets that have been frozen and allocate half of them toward humanitarian work in Afghanistan, but the other half he intends to give to the victims of 9-11 that have obtained court judgments against the Taliban. There are a couple of crucial timing issues here. I would expect the Biden team would resist earmarking the frozen Russian Federation assets for another purpose. If there were to be a settlement, Putin will surely ask that the sanctions be lifted and his money returned to him. And were Mr. Biden to commit that money for another purpose, that would take $300 billion off of the negotiating table. And he might be reluctant to do that. The problem is that the longer this goes on, the greater the risk that private parties will sue the Russian Federation. If Russian bonds go into default, one could expect that there will be lawsuits by bondholders, by investors who've had their property confiscated in Russia. And once those lawsuits begin and the frozen assets become subject to attachments by private litigants, that vastly complicates the president's ability to dispose of them. The best historical example here was President Reagan's decision in 1981 with respect to frozen Iranian assets after the hostage taking in Tehran in 1979. 400 lawsuits had been commenced against Iran in this country and a proportionate number of attachments of Iranian assets. The deal that Reagan cut with the Iranians was that all of those lawsuits were to be voided. All of the claimants sent to The Hague to present their cases before the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal and all of the assets to be made available to the Claims Tribunal. Reagan was sued for having done that. He went to the U.S. Supreme Court and prevailed, but it was a very narrow decision. The concern that the U.S. government would have is that if you void those attachments, does that constitute a taking of private property without just compensation in violation of the Fifth Amendment? We have this situation right now 
in Venezuela, President Trump froze Venezuelan assets. Private litigants have attached those frozen assets. The freezing order prevails. But at such time as it is lifted, those attachments would bite. That's the timing issue. President Biden would be wise not to wait too long before deciding whether he is going to allocate frozen Russian Federation assets to some other purpose, such as humanitarian or reconstruction activities in Ukraine. Normally, if Russia were to default on its debt, its bondholders could not get an attachment on the Russian central bank's U.S. Treasury portfolio. To clarify what you're saying, if Biden gave Russia's assets to Ukraine, the U.S. government would not be at risk for many attachments by Russia's creditors. But if the Russian foreign assets are held by the U.S. government, then a U.S. court could require that the Russian assets be given to Russia's private creditors. Correct. If President Biden were to outright confiscate, would those assets remain property of the Russian Federation and therefore be subject to attachment by third party creditors of the Russian Federation? I would think not. And let's say tomorrow, all frozen assets subject to U.S. jurisdiction are transferred to the Ukraine government to be used for humanitarian relief and reconstruction. At that point, I think they would no longer belong to the Russian Federation and no longer be subject to attachment. Surely the Russia central bank assets must be a part of any negotiated settlement. If Mr. Putin were prepared to sit at a settlement table, he would surely insist, give me my money back and lift the sanctions. But the timing issue, Larry, is important. The president has that discretion now. But at the point that private litigants begin to file attachment orders on those assets while they remain assets of the Russian Federation, at that point, voiding the attachments raises the question of whether the U.S. government has taken property from those private litigants. That was the issue that Mr. Reagan confronted. The Supreme Court dodged it. The Supreme Court said any litigant in that position who wishes to file a claim before the Court of Claims where you sue the U.S. government you're free to go and do it. Biden has some time. If Russia misses an interest payment, there will be a grace period before the default is official. Then it takes time for the bondholders to start a lawsuit and get a judgment. You're right. There's a 30-day grace period on these bonds. Then 25% of the bondholders would have to accelerate. Then someone would have to sue. Russia would have 60 days to answer that lawsuit in a U.S. court. It would take another nine months to get a judgment. Once they got a judgment, they would then have the ability to attach. In litigation against a sovereign state, the U.S. State Department often goes to court and requests that the judge not take an action that is averse to the president's foreign policy objectives. Biden will have a very legitimate argument here if the attachment undermines peace negotiations with Putin. Federal courts take that very seriously. It's a constitutional issue. Foreign affairs is principally the responsibility of the executive branch. And the judiciary is very leery 
of taking actions that could interfere with the executive's conduct of foreign affairs. Were the president to come into a federal court and say this is a matter of acute interest to the foreign affairs of this country, the court is not bound to accept that, but would certainly give it a great deal of deference. Biden's decision to confiscate hundreds of billions of dollars of treasuries is a big deal. Individual investors and governments have purchased billions of dollars of supposedly riskless treasury bonds. And now we're saying that if a nation engages in policies that the president finds objectionable, then the president can confiscate the central bank's bonds and bonds held by foreign nationals. The U.S. government has benefited enormously from the world's reserve currency and having foreigners, and especially foreign central banks, finance our debt. Why are we going to risk ending that practice? Yeah, it's a fair point. That's what made the decision of the U.S. Treasury to go after the Russian central bank's assets so significant. It sends a message to any country that is not a fast friend of the United States, that were they to find themselves on the wrong end of a political dispute with Uncle Sam, they may find that a portion of their international reserves are effectively frozen and potentially subject to outright confiscation. That is a pretty significant step for the United States to have taken because there are a number of countries, China surely at the top of the list, that have enormous holdings of U.S. government securities that I'm sure they felt were safe from this sort of risk. How many basis points might the U.S. Treasury have to pay in additional interest rates? If these large foreign government buyers become leery of holding U.S. Treasury securities, the decision to go after the Russian central bank was very significant. How broad is the president's power to confiscate U.S. corporate stocks and bonds held by foreign governments or foreign citizens? His authority extends to any property subject to U.S. jurisdiction in which the foreign state has an interest. So if they owned ExxonMobil bonds, gold at Citibank, all of those assets are potentially subject to being frozen. Foreign nationals' assets could also be frozen. I think a different legal issue if a foreign national comes in and says, you've frozen my assets What is the foreign policy basis for that? Because all of these actions are taken under a statute that gives the president the authority to do these things because they relate to foreign affairs of this country. An individual might have a better case to say, I'm scarcely a threat to the foreign policy of the United States. Lee, you participated in countless sovereign debt disputes. How do you think the situation will be resolved? <laughs> um, it will eventually be settled sooner or later. Putin is so far committed. He has got to be able to show that he has won something with sufficient face saving. For example, say I want 
Crimea to be recognized. I want the Donbass. I want a land corridor between Russia and Crimea, and I'll withdraw my troops. Maybe he could do that. But there is a significant chance that Putin decides he's going to stay in a portion of Ukraine. The Ukrainian government does not acquiesce, and the sanctions remain in place for a long time. The consequences on the Russian economy will be devastating. Look, (laughs) Cuba has been sitting there in isolation since 1960. It is possible for a country to become such a pariah that they are cut off diplomatically, economically, financially, even socially from the rest of the world. But you would not have thought a country as significant as Russia would wish that or could endure it for long. I want to change the conversation to Russian individuals. Both the U.S. and EU governments have been confiscating boats and homes in places like Belgravia and London owned by Russian nationals. I would have thought that personal property would be protected. And if this sort of action will become commonplace when a citizen's government is in conflict with the West, then the foreigner cannot hold personal property here in the United States or Europe. Would you recommend that Chinese nationals consider sale leasebacks using non-recourse debt on property or holding assets in complex offshore companies and trusts to disguise ownership? Russian nationals rarely hold those assets in their own name. (laughs) There will be a layer upon layer upon layer of holding companies, often in jurisdictions that are not receptive to disclosure of beneficial owners. Could someone prove that the Russian national owns it? Even if they could, then the question would become, are those assets ostensibly in the name of an individual to be regarded as constructively Russian Federation assets and therefore subject to attachment by, let's say, Russian bondholders or the Ukraine government for damages to the Ukraine, that too is a big, big step. I would see that as a much more complicated process. What are you going to do with your money? How many New Zealand dollars can you buy? You've got to put it someplace. And what this affair has shown is that In a situation where your home country does something that is regarded as truly outrageous by the Western world, those jurisdictions have the ability to freeze assets. Oligarchs would have to look hard to find places where they could put their money with absolute security. If you were advising the Central Bank of China that has trillions of dollars of U.S. dollar and euro-denominated assets to reallocate its resources to prevent confiscation, what would you recommend? It's a staggering amount of money. Chinese, if they foresaw a situation in which there could be a rupture with the Western countries, they would draw down those positions. The Russians bought $130 billion of their reserves in gold. And Biden just attempted to restrict even that. 
Maduro has been for the last few years attempting to sell his gold. He puts it on a private plane to Iran or Africa and tries to sell it. That's what Biden is trying to shut down with this latest round of sanctions. This isn't the first time that the West has dealt with a rogue regime. What financial actions did we take against the Kaiser and Hitler's Germany? We had passed in 1917 the so-called Trading with the Enemies Act. That statute gives this power to freeze foreign assets in the hands of the president. So we froze them. My recollection is that the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company, we may have actually sold off their patents. So far, we've discussed state actions by our enemies, but sometimes we get into conflicts with our friends. For example, in 1956, the UK, France, and Israel attacked Egypt over the nationalization of the Suez Canal. Eisenhower was blindsided and angry and he limited the UK's ability to borrow money during a run on sterling, forcing the UK to back down. Do you think that the president could apply these powers over our friends and their citizens to force allies to get in line? I think the provocation for the United States to take an action like this against a friend and ally has got to be pretty great. President Eisenhower expressed his severe disapproval of what was done in the Suez incident, and that got those countries to back off it. But theoretically, if the president declares a situation to be of acute concern to the foreign policy of this country, it is not limited in a practical sense. I think they would think hard about doing it without severe provocation. This is a lot of power delegated to the president. What are the checks and balances from the Congress? It is in the hands of the president, and Congress has authorized it by legislation, starting with the Trading with the Enemy Act. And the principal one is something called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. It is always up to Congress to pass legislation that would restrict what the president can do. It's pretty much a discretion of the executive branch. It goes back to our constitutional allocation of foreign affairs, principally in the hands of the executive branch. Are there treaty protections for Russian individuals and their property? I don't know whether the Russian Federation is a party to so-called bilateral investment treaties. These are treaties between two countries that give investors in each other's economy the ability to pursue arbitration remedies in the event that their investments are confiscated. If such treaties exist, and I would expect they do exist, then that's probably the principal recourse. There are provisions in U.S. law permitting a cause of action where property has been taken in violation of international law. International law requires that if you expropriate property, you're obliged to pay prompt, just, and effective compensation. Over the last 25 years has been mostly private investors resorting to these arbitration remedies. Maduro's Venezuela has 30-some 
of these arbitration cases pending against it. Russia successfully made an interest payment on its external debt a few days ago, but there's a lot of discussion about how the cash made its way through the financial system, given the EU and U.S. restrictions on Russia's money. What happened? Payment went to J.P. Morgan and from there to Citibank acting as paying agent. J.P. Morgan, as you might expect, went back to OFAC and said, we want to be sure we can pass this through. The mystery here, though, Larry, is where did that money come from? From a policy standpoint, OFAC logically should have said, if that money is being sourced from unblocked accounts, let it flow through because that just further drains Russia's FX reserves and amplifies the effects of the sanctions. But if they said the money could be debited from a blocked account, (laughs) that strikes me as illogical. That allows Russia to use blocked money to service its debt. That's the mystery, where the money was sourced from. I know the West is outraged by Putin's behavior, but does it make public policy sense to weaponize U.S. Treasury bonds? This decision could have long-term implications on how we finance our debt and our role in the world. Was this properly thought through? I think they thought it through, Larry. They have previously refrained from acting as aggressively as they did in this case. They made the decision that the provocation was so outrageous that they would take that step. But the $3 trillion question, what are you going to do with the money if you can't invest it in the world's most liquid and theoretically safe financial asset? Lee, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I am optimistic that contrary to many people's expectations, the Western nations have rallied together in the face of this. That is some basis for optimism. Thanks to Wayne and Lee for joining us today. That ends today's session. I do want to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be Howard Husak, who is a senior fellow at AEI. Howard will discuss his new book, The Poor Side of Town, and why we need it. Howard believes that housing for the poor can best be offered by the private sector, like in the old days, when the landlord lived on the floor below. Public housing's failed, so let's figure out what works. Our second speaker will be Irv Gelman, who is a popular historian, who has a new book entitled Campaign of the Century, Kennedy, Nixon, and the Election of 1960. Irv disagrees with the historical narrative about this incredibly close presidential race. There's so much to discuss, including election fraud, JFK's mistresses, and the first television debates. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.